Good morning, church family, those here in the building. Good morning, those of you who are joining us online, whether it is February the 13th, as it is here today, or, or someday in the distant future. But for those of us who are present in real time, this, of course, is the Valentine's Day Weekend, And when we were plotting out this series, Family Matters, uh, we knew that we had both Valentine's Day and we had Family Day in the month of February, and we were thinking about themes, knowing that not everybody resonates with all of the themes. And this may not be your Sunday. Your Sunday may be coming, it may have already happened, but for those of you who are here this morning... Our theme, our focus is on marriage. As we were talking about the different themes and deciding who would speak to them, uh, there was no doubt about this one. They said, Richard, we know, I mean, you are the unrivaled expert on the theme of, of marriage. I mean, your marriage is heaven kissed, heaven blessed. The star of Bethlehem shines over your house. And so I said, of course, I mean, 30 years almost into this thing, there is nothing more for me to learn. Uh, huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you've been sitting for a while. Let's, let's do this. Let's have you stand up where you are. Okay. Uh, without doing damage to the people next to you, I'm just going to have you turn around 360 degrees and click your heels together. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> And maybe you want to say, I want to go home. I want to go. No. Okay. Have a seat. Why do we do that? Uh, because uh, there is something that we think is almost magical about marriage, uh, about what it is and about how it's supposed to happen. Uh, at the outset, I just want to acknowledge that I am not aware of any other area of life that routinely sets a higher level of expectation over what two people ought to feel, Uh, something that, that they hang their hopes on. And if we're honest, we also need to say that I'm probably not aware of any other area of life that can lead to so much disappointment and brokenness and dashed hopes as a fractured marriage. The whole way that we set the thing up, with that feeling of, of almost mythical fantasy around it, uh, it, it just makes it, boy, it makes it a problem. You know, marriage begins with courtship, where two people dress up in ways they don't normally dress, and they go to places that they don't normally go, and, and they, they do things they don't normally do. Uh, we call it courtship. The whole point is to deceive each No, it's not that. <laughs> but, but then eventually there's engagement. I, I read this morning that, that there will be somewhere between four and six million marriage proposals that happen in North America tomorrow on Valentine's Day. Yeah. But here's what we know. There's, there's on average about 2.2 million weddings every year. So you do the math about the dream and the reality. Uh, Think about what happens afterwards. There's an engagement, and then a couple who don't have any money, they go out and spend the money they don't have on a ring they couldn't afford, and then she goes around showing it to all of her girlfriends for the next three weeks just to humble them. And then they get to the work of planning a wedding, and sometimes these days, at least the weddings, they take on 
almost like Steven Spielberg style proportions. And now the parents are broke, not just the couple. And then there's the wedding day. And this is just meant, it's meant to torment everyone. Starts with the groom, some regular guy stuffed into a tuxedo with all kinds of little equipment that he doesn't have any idea what to do with. There's the bride who spends three hours the day before and three hours that morning to look like a goddess for an hour and a half for the wedding and the, and for the photos. And then there's the bridal party. The tuxes the guys have to rent, the dresses that the girls wear with the promise, I picked something that you'll be able to wear again. Rubbish. You, I mean, you, you never wear that thing again, right? <laughs> I guess the point that we're making here humorously is that the whole way we approach the idea of marriage has a kind of surrealness around it. There's this mythical, fantasy-like aura. And then it is confronted with the absolute starkness of the reality. All of this money and time and energy, creativity go into the wedding. And then the next day, the marriage begins. And you're confronted with the reality that you're sitting opposite each other in some sparsely furnished apartment that she doesn't look anything like she looked the day before, and neither does he. And you're arguing over whose turn it is to take out the garbage. I mean, I mean it's good to laugh, right? But I, I realize for some people who are watching us, for some who are here, that it's, it's really not a subject that brings a lot of laughter. That the word marriage... Uh, means not your dreams fulfilled, but your joys crushed. Either because it it didn't happen the way that you had anticipated, and now you're sitting midway through life saying, did life pass me by? Or because it did happen, instead of being the stuff that dreams are made of, it turned out to be life's greatest tragedy. And for all of those reasons, uh, we decided that we we're going to title this message, Demystifying marriage. And right out of the box, just try and get rid of some of the, whether it's cultural or Hollywood hype that gets built up around it, and just try and peel it back and get to the substance of what marriage is. And so in the interest of time, let me just jump right in and say from a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective, a short definition of marriage would be two imperfect people entering into a committed relationship, diligently pursuing intimacy under the loving rule of God. Four phrases, and those four phrases, Jonathan, you can put the first one back up on the screen. You were tracking right with me there. Four phrases that will sort of carry us through this understanding of marriage from a biblical point of view. Now, here's the first. Two imperfect people. Two imperfect people entering into a relationship. Uh, An author who I was fond of reading uh, years ago, M. Scott Peck, said that romance, romance is that temporary state of insanity so powerful that it overrules our sober judgment just long enough to get us to the marriage altar. A little bit cynical, but 
I understand what he was getting at. It's easy to let marriage become so romanticized that we lose all sight of reality. And the first reality that we face as we're trying to demystify marriage is this sober truth that what we're really doing is hooking up two deeply flawed people with the hope that we will produce one problem-free, bliss-filled union. And if you're using horse racing language, that would be called a long shot, right? And when I say deeply flawed people, I'm not exaggerating, and I'm not talking about your spouse, I'm talking about you, and I'm not talking about my wife, I'm talking about me. Lately, I've been coming to terms with the fact that I brought a lot more flaws into our marriage than originally I thought I would. I mean, I knew Karina brought hers, of course, but I've just, I've become, I've become so much more acquainted with the flaws that I brought into the marriage equation. How about you? I mean, what might some of those be? Uh, Here's one. You might call these family of origin flaws. You know, it's, it's maybe tough to admit that that the family that you grew up in didn't pump out a perfect product, especially because the product I'm talking about is you. It's tough to admit that there were some dynamics in your family that served you well and set you up for success in the world, but there might have been others that just weren't constructive. And it feels like treason to say it out loud, doesn't it? And believe me, I, I'm not advocating parent bashing at all. To me, there's nothing healthy in that. But what I'm encouraging is just kind of an honest assessment where we can say, my family of origin, they produced in me a product that was both good and bad. Maybe more good than bad, I hope so, but always a mixture. Can you say that? I mean, have you reached a place where you can be honest that none of us escaped the families in which we were raised unscathed. None of you had perfect parents. Someday, our children are going to look back on us and say, you know, growing up, mom and dad, they did this and this and this, and boy, we sure appreciated the way they did those things. But they're also going to say, you know what we missed out on our family? You know what I wish mom had done? You know what we wish dad hadn't done? And they're going to have to face it someday. And if they don't face it, what they will bring into their relationships is a like a subconscious, almost a subterranean kind of flaw. And they're not even going to know what's driving that flaw or that set of flaws. So let me just encourage you, as you reflect on the message in the days ahead, maybe reflect on what some of those family of origin flaws might be. Uh, we mentioned earlier, and, and Winslow, you prayed for the Emotionally Healthy Relationships course. You deal with that, right? And the saying that you use to remember it is, Jesus may be in our hearts, but Grandpa's in our bones. Which means there's just something that's there in our family of origin that has weight and currency. That might not be the only flaw that you bring into your marriage. Uh, There's a second set of flaws that maybe we could call it the downside of your temperament and your personality mix. We've talked about this at MCBC before. We Remember we did that shape series, understanding your God-given shape, and, and so much of what God has made you to be, your personality, your temperament, that is his imprint, and it can be beautiful, it can be wonderful. But there's a downside. 
There's usually a downside to our personality. You know, there are some among us here who are spontaneous and extroverted and carefree. They're the the kind of people who would say, the only time I ever say no to an invitation to a party is when I didn't hear correctly. And and there are some of you who who gravitate towards those kind of people, and and you love it. They're, they're, They're just, they bring excitement and joy into the mix. But then you get in a relationship and you realize there can be downsides to that kind of personality. Maybe maybe they're a little bit irresponsible. Maybe they don't do rest or reflection very well at all. Others of us were drawn to more sensitive, more compassionate temperaments, and we get involved in a marriage relationship with someone like that, and we find there's a flip side to it. Maybe there's a, a dark, brooding nature that we're aware of. Maybe they're They have a tendency to become withdrawn or self-preoccupied. Some of us like goal-oriented people, the achievers, only to find six months into the marriage that this goal-oriented achiever has a tendency to run over other people and their needs and ignore other things going on in life. Some of us were drawn to that laid-back temperament. We find that the downside is they just they take a lot of things and a lot of people for granted. What I'm saying is that all of us bring personality, bring temperament into marriage. And temperament, personality, they have an upside and they have a flip side. Now, I'm the exception in this case. I don't bring any downside. But um, <laughs> my wife's sitting over here. I'm just going to look here for a while. Yeah, yeah. So there's these family of family of origin flaws. There's the downside to our personality and our temperament. Maybe here's a, a third area you might want to reflect on. And that's the reality of our own sinful nature. What do I mean? I mean there's that there's that gravitational force that pulls us towards behaviors and attitudes that we know are destructive. And yet we do them anyway. And we can't seem to stop. It's not an isolated problem. I mean, the Bible's really clear about this. No exceptions here. Romans 3.23, some of you know the verse. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not just your marriage partner, it's you. And it's not just your marriage, it's your neighbors and the people sitting in the seat beside you, all of us. And as a pastor, I promise you, I have done just enough marriage counseling to know those long, pregnant silences that follow when you ask a question like, well, if you knew how she would react when you did that, why did you do it? And they just say, I, I don't know. I, I couldn't not do it. That's sin. I mean, the more honest answer would be, I did it because I'm a sinner, because there's this nature in me that pulls me downward, that urges me to do destructive things. Actually, maybe the most appropriate answer would be because I haven't yet learned how to fully appropriate the power of Christ in my life that enables me to do something better. We need to move on, of course, Time is ticking. But let me remind you, I mean, as we're demystifying marriage, let there be no mistake about what we're doing. We're taking these two deeply flawed people, family of origin flaws, downside of personality flaws, basic sin in our nature. It's flawed. 
And we're launching that together and saying, have a blissful marriage. You know, a lot of people are discouraged when they look at divorce statistics. I am too, but actually sometimes I'm amazed they're not higher. Because what we're trying to do is a difficult thing. And you need to know, of course, you probably do know, that if you're going to develop a flourishing marriage, then partners on both sides of the equation have to deal with their flaws. You can't really deal effectively with your partner's flaws, right? Have you discovered that? Some of you have been trying for 10, 20, 29 years. <laughs> Karina spent close to three decades trying to fix me and... I'm not sure whether she'd tell you how effective she's been in that. But the truth is, you can't deal with other people's flaws. So let's let's try another approach. When something doesn't work for 10 or 20 or 30 years, we put a tombstone on that, and we just call it a bad way of doing relationship. But instead of bailing out, we're saying, I'm going to work on my own flaws under the rule of a powerful, loving God who is rooting for us. God has a vested interest in your marriage. We're going to read the promises of God's word, like these ones, Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help out in time of need. Of all the things that we pray for in marriage, we ought to be praying for this, mercy and grace. Mercies that God has said come fresh every morning. Let's face down our own family of origin stuff and our own downside of temperament stuff and the own sin nature. Let's face it down. Let's let's summon up the presence of God and the Holy Spirit and bring a better product into the partnership, a better me. Work on your side of the equation. And, and let me just acknowledge right now, because I, I see some of you nodding like this and some of you nodding like this, right? I know that some of you are doing that work heroically and you're working on your side of the equation and you've got a lump in your throat or a stomach ache coming on because your spouse won't do it. And your spouse is mine. There are no family of origin flaws. There's no downside to my personality. What's sin? And you're limping along with a broken heart. Because you know that you can't build a marriage without two people willing to build together, without those axes knocking together. We're praying with you. We're standing there in solidarity with you. We're trusting with you. We're asking God to intervene with you. We're asking for tenacity. Hold on. We're holding out for the day that God may come. But it takes two. Let's come back to our definition. Marriage is two flawed people. Here's the second point, entering into a committed relationship. I want to focus on those two words, entering and committed. Entering and committed. Uh, for marriage to begin, there is an entering that needs to happen. And this goes way back to the original story, the beginning of the covenant of marriage, way back in Genesis, in chapter 2, these verses in verse, in verse 24. For this reason, 
A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave, which means to enter, to enter into a union with his wife and they'll become one flesh. Um, in marriage language, we jokingly call this the leave and cleave clause. Right? The leave and cleave. But there's an entering that needs to happen. In a few minutes, like 700 of them, we're going to leave this auditorium. And no. Everybody's asleep, Rochelle. I've lost them already. Yeah, yeah how long is 700 minutes? Yeah. Uh, in a few minutes, we're going to leave this auditorium and we're going to enter something. The car or the bus or the cold. We're going to enter the cold. Here's what the Bible says has to happen for marriage to flourish. You've got to leave something. You have to leave not just geographically. This isn't just a new address. But in a sense, you have to leave your family of origin. You've got to give up something emotionally and psychologically. In other words, you you leave the old parent-child dynamics behind. 1 Corinthians, Foster and Lucy quoted from that beautiful text. But you know there's that part that says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child. But now that I'm all grown up, I'm giving up those childish ways. There's something that you have to give up, something that you have to leave in order to enter into relationship. Gone is that old parent-child dynamic. Now new is this peer-to-peer dynamic. You have to cut those tethers. And you have to enter into this relationship based on its uniqueness, on its own, on its own merits. And when, you, when you're doing that, really what you're doing is you're forging a new relationship based on, on the parts that are available. You and your spouse. You work with what's there. In marriage preparation, we, we say you've got to marry what's in front of you. You don't marry the possibility of who they might become. No, you're setting yourself up for disaster. You don't marry the ideal of what you read marriage should be. No, you work with what's there. And you don't do it necessarily the way that your folks did it. Some of you, you're dragging back a a lot of trauma. And even if it's not trauma, they're not you. Your wife is not your mother-in-law. Did you hear that? Your wife is not your mother-in-law. Your husband is not your father-in-law. You enter into a marriage based on its own merits. So we decide here is how we're going to work out conflict. And it may not be the way your parents did it. Here's how we're going to make financial decisions. And that may not be the way it was done in your home. Here's how we're going to relate to friends and other couples. Here's how we're going to work out our physical relationship. Here's how we're going to make family plans and, and career plans and church plans. But the point is you've got to leave something and then enter into something new with your spouse. And I need to be honest that there's something about that, that leaving process that's confusing and, and it's often unglamorous. And marriage experts say that in, in many relationships, that can take five to seven, what, days, months, years. Five to seven years. Is there any reason that when you look at divorce statistics and reasons for divorce, one of them that always looms right up there at the top is in-law complications. What's going on there? It's a failure to leave and re-enter. 
Now, the second part of that phrase, I mean, you, you enter into a committed relationship. Now, what does that mean, committed? Let me be clear. There are lots of examples in the Bible of marriage. Many of them are not good. Uh, you've discovered that in the Bible, right? Just because it's there doesn't mean it's God's good example. There's a lot of stuff in there that's horrific. Polygamous marriages, unfaithful marriages, adulterous marriages, um, divorce, all kinds of things that are in there. But when it actually comes time to reflect on God's ideal of marriage, particularly in the New Testament, there is only one kind of commitment that emerges, and it is exclusive, it's radical, it's faithful through thick and thin, and it's lifelong. And when the writers of the Bible look for a metaphor to describe it, they settle on the same image. And that's the commitment demonstrated by Jesus himself in the way that he loves his church. A commitment that's total and costly and exclusive, sacrificial. This is how it's described. Ephesians 5, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Again, I see some people nodding like this and other people like this. So let's be clear here. Family of origin flaws, downside of personality flaws, our own sinful nature flaws. The Bible acknowledges that sometimes one spouse or both spouses can rip apart the marriage contract so savagely through adultery, through abuse, through desertion. Marriage, in fact, is destroyed. But that was never the intent of God. The intention of God in in his sovereignty, in his wisdom, was always that these two imperfect people would be able to leave their homes psychologically, maybe geographically, leave their youth behind and enter into a mature relationship, one that is grounded in a commitment that they take with them to the grave. Why? Because I think God knew, God made us after all, that it's only that level of commitment that allows us to have that high sense of security and trust in a relationship where people can really not just survive but thrive. Trust that there will be safety and that there will be confidence and love in the relationship. Uh, that, that it's going to be there tomorrow. That one spouse isn't lying there awake at night wondering whether or not they've given their heart to somebody who isn't coming home. It's not a relationship where secrets are kept because there's a fear of abandonment or desertion. No fear of injury. No sense that illness will be the, the final straw that breaks the covenant. Somebody will jump ship. It's not a kind of marriage where kids walking around with a subconscious terror that one day they're going to come home from school and their dad's going to be gone. Believe me, we are not made. People are not made for that kind of heartbreak. For the trauma and tragedy associated with commitment-free marriage. God knows it, and that's why God says, here's the commitment I want you to make with each other when you walk down the aisle. Radical, 
exclusive, courageous, through trial, through tragedy, lifelong commitment. Good to the grave. Two deeply flawed people entering a committed relationship. And what is it they do when they get there? Diligently pursuing intimacy. What do you do after the wedding ceremony? What do you do on the wedding night? What do you do each day afterwards? What is the goal? I mean, what's really the bullseye of marriage? What is your union all about? The word that's used right there at the beginning, Genesis 2.24, is the word oneness. We might use the word intimacy. What does that mean? For this reason, a man shall leave father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two will become one. Intimacy, oneness. What does it mean? Does it mean fusion? Right? The eradication of each person's personality? It's kind of like that. You've been to weddings where they have the symbolism of the candles, right? And there they are. There's the two candles on the outside of the table, the families from which we've come, the people that we are. And then they get to the end of the service and they extinguish those. And they, you know, because they've lit a new one in the middle. Is that what it is? You extinguish who you were. You become one fused creation. Yeah. Sounds right, but what if it's not? Uh, what if it doesn't mean necessarily finishing each other's sentences and their desserts? And what if it doesn't mean always being together? What if it doesn't always mean continual great sex or never having to say you're sorry? Or what is it that intimacy really means? And let me just shoot straight with you here. Uh, as far as I can tell, and I, I would love to hear from somebody who might have found otherwise, but as far as I can tell, the Bible never gives a single, like one sentence or one verse definition of intimacy or oneness. But what it does give, if you search the scriptures, if you comb through the passages, particularly the, pas- the passages about marriage, is a collection of phrases and a collection of images that, that probably could be paraphrased as follows. What is intimacy? Oneness? It's knowing and being known by somebody so completely that there's this trust and security that means you don't have to hide. You don't have to hide anything from each other. Remember the great evidence of the fall in the creation story? What was it? Hiding. First they hide their bodies. Oh, I'm naked. And then they hide from each other. And then they hide from God. Intimacy is not having to hide. This is the one person you can be real with. You could even be naked with. Can you say that in the church? Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too late. Uh, uh, what is intimacy? It's, it's feeling safe enough in a relationship that you can tell your spouse things that you wouldn't tell anybody else. Because there's history there, there's depth, there's love to it. That's intimacy. It's developing a, an empathic and an empathetic heart towards each other. That that sense of acceptance and understanding. What would that feel like? Can you, can you imagine? Some of you can imagine because you've got it. What would it feel like to know that somebody delights in you so much, is so connected with you in body and in spirit? What would that feel like? That's, that's intimacy. 
Intimacy means yearning for the very best for the person you share your life with. It's honoring and, and knowing what it's like to be honored, respecting and, and being respected, disagreeing with each other without drawing blood. I mean, being able to do conflict well. Axes banging together, but not cutting each other. Right? It's sensing that God in his wisdom drew you together from opposite sides of the world, Oz and Irene. And then it's that realization 53 years later, Maudin, or sorry, uh, Foster and Lucy, 53 years later as you're driving down the road in your car and looking across the front seat at each other that, that God was right, that you were meant for each other, that you belong to each other. That's, that's intimacy. And I have to tell you that, boy, this doesn't happen overnight. Sex happens overnight. That might be an expression of intimacy, but that's not intimacy. It takes precious little to rob a relationship of intimacy. Maybe that's why it's so precarious. You just inject like a 20% fear factor into a relationship, and intimacy goes out the window. If you're afraid, afraid of what will happen if you do this, afraid even of coming home. There's no intimacy. Just inject a little bit of self-centeredness or self-preoccupation. You will ruin the potential for intimacy. Inject some hidden hostility, some some buried deep down underneath feelings. The possibility of intimacy just evaporates. Even stuff like busyness, chronic fatigue, it, it will make two spouses become like strangers to each other in the same house. That's why the third phrase says, you don't just pursue intimacy, you diligently, diligently pursue intimacy if you ever hope to experience it. You have to understand what it is. You have to agree that oneness is what God desired for your marriage. And you have to be willing to face any obstacle on your side of the equation that would inhibit you from finding it. Diligently pursue intimacy. Well, let's... Let's wrap it up with, with really where it should have started and where it did start. Remember, God has a vested interest in your marriage. Your covenant is, is not a dyad, it's a triad with God at the summit. And so this is a relationship that is being diligently pursued under the loving rule of God. Translation, none of you will be in a flourishing marriage without the help of God. You know how much humility it takes to come face to face with your flaws? It requires a God-shaped humility in order to do that honestly, to confront your past and your temperament and, and your sin nature. You know how much trust and faith it takes to cut tethers from home and really take the leap of faith that says we are going to do this union in an entirely new way, the two of us, in mutuality and respect Without all the other stuff, we might be trailing behind it. And we're going to do it because our, our house, our home, our marriage is built under the loving rule of God. That's the foundation. And you know how risky it is to move towards intimacy without the assurance that God himself is the model for what it means to be as close as breath, to be as gentle as spirit, to be unshakably and unbreakably loving. To risk that 
Who gives you the humility, the faith, the power to do that? God above. I guess we've said a lot about marriage today, but boy, I'd love to end on that note. By placing ourselves under the loving rule of God. By acknowledging that under the loving rule of God, marriage can work. The good ones can get better. The strained ones can improve. The dying ones can be injected with new life. Hey, even the even the super marriages can get scandalously wonderful under the loving rule of God. And before we we close in prayer, I, I want to give you a takeaway because um, none of this just happens. So if, if you're looking for a next step, those of you who are married, aspiring to be married, uh, you will find on the church's website a link to Right Now Media. This is a tremendous resource tool we have in the life of the church. And on that, there's a series of recommendations that will follow all along with the topics we're addressing in this series, Family Matters. So you'll find resources there on marriage, on parenting, on the dignity and the beauty of, uh, of living a life as a single person in the kingdom of God. Lots of resources there. So you'll find the link on our homepage. Click from there, and then um, you'll find right at the very top where it says MCBC, a button, press it, and there it goes. But, of course, the greatest rule is, or the greatest resource is the one that is never more than a prayer away. And so let me invite you to join me now as we close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, Father, the... The first group of people I want to pray for now are are those who who live lives as singles. Many of them are part of of the message this morning. They've been listening. Some of them with anticipation, hoping that someday marriage might be in the future. Others not feeling that call at all. Some looking back and lamenting a marriage that has ended. Some have realized that the idea of marriage might never work out. God, we pray for them, all of them. We pray that the dignity of who they are in your eyes and their, and their oneness with the family of God it would come to them in a powerful new way this morning. And God, I pray for the divorced and the separated, those among us who are probably feeling a whole mix of feelings right now. For those who are in strained marriages, and this has been uncomfortable, subject matter, but it touches a deep and raw place in their lives. God, I want to pray for the whole church family, that we would once again summon the courage to face marriage realities and trust that under your loving rule that there is there is strength and vulnerability and love that can be brought to bear, that your power can be brought to bear in improving our marriages. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.